good morning again, uh, assuming you were all there before. What Father said he wanted was for me to kind of kick off this uh, study of how you can learn and be informed and be shaped by what is and has always been for Christian people. Before there are any splits in the church, before there are any problems, before anybody started throwing theological hand grenades at each other over this, that, or the other, first split was, I think, this century, way before that, from the time of the Lord, the Mass, the Eucharist, the Divine Liturgy, whatever name you want to stick on it, the Holy Communion, Remember the first book of common prayer said, I, I think entitled it, the Holy Communion and Lord's Supper commonly called the Mass, which kind of grabs everything in one handful. <laughs> so, you have to understand that this, what we went through this morning, and the act of receiving communion was the center of Christian life from Jesus in the upper room. You know, the Orthodox Church believes, uh, follows the chronology that is in John's Gospel, uh, which means that the Last Supper was not the Passover meal, as it is in the Synoptic Gospel. It was, in fact, the meal that Jesus would have done with his followers every Friday night because that was the eve of the Jewish Sabbath, the Shabbat. Every Friday night, which involves prayer, the offering of bread, and the offering of wine, and eating and drinking thereof. Now, had, you know, had it been the Passover meal, they would have had a lot of other stuff in it, they would have had more prayers, But when Jesus said to them, do this in remembrance of me, it would have taken a whole year to get back to that. It would have taken a whole year to get back to the Shabbat, you know, to to the last supper, for the the Jews, the last supper. But they had this meal that was done between a teacher and his students, a rabbi and his students, which was what I have just described to you. And this would have hit them the next week. They would have gathered for that meal. We know they were hiding out, you know, in the upper room because they were afraid of arrest and that sort of thing. And they still would have gotten the stuff together to offer this meal. And as they're saying, the prayer, Jesus' words would have come back. Do this in remembrance of me. Drink this in remembrance of me. That, I'm convinced, is when they made the connection. That's when he struck right. Not a week before. Because there was so much going on. <clears throat> there was so much emotion. Then he gets drug off, you know, and, and Peter start falling, but people start falling by the wayside and what have you. I don't think it would have really registered with them. Otherwise, you know, those Protestant churches who do this once a year or once a month, whether they need it or right or not, are probably right. But if it was, it's called the kubula. That's the meal they would have done. 
that had, had that been the case, then the next Friday it would have hit him. Oh, whoa. Didn't the Lord say something about this? That's what he meant. You know, do this in remembrance. Now, what does the word remembrance mean? Well, in Greek, the word is anemnosis. And anemnosis means do this to bring me back into your midst. You remember in the sense that you've got a real presence there. Uh, two years ago in October, my son will have killed himself. I was going to the garage about six months ago, and I came across a wood-burning thing. I mean, wood-burning kit you get when you're 10, 11, 12, that he had made for me of a sports car. And it was, he was there. That's the kind of anemnesis. That's the kind of remembrance that Jesus is referring to. Do this to bring you back into your midst. This, therefore, they would have gathered for him every Sabbath. We know originally in the evening, the eve of the Saturday uh, celebration, uh, because Paul went someplace and preached so long, somebody fell out of a window and got, he fell asleep. Uh, so it was uh, something that they did, but then gradually moved over. We don't know how long, we don't even know how long exactly it, the, the Eucharist was connected with a meal. Now, of course, we still today run for food as soon as we get out of church. But then they tried to maintain the context of being with a community meal. And that just got to be very difficult to do. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians. It's very snarky. You know, because some people are coming and bringing fancy stuff. Some people can't afford to bring anything. Some people are not afford, are not sharing with those who can't afford to bring anything. Same kind of thing sometimes that come up with potluck supper and we do them now. And he gets he said, Well, you don't have homes, eat and drink before you get there. You fast, haven't kicked in yet. But he said, if you got home, eat there. Then come and worship and share this offering as a community. It might have lasted, I don't know, 10 years, keeping it in, in, in a community meal. Yeah. But they had this sense of, if we do this, the Lord is there. He's really there. If we're not, not remembering like we remember George Washington on his birthday or Robert Ely on his, I'm sorry, uh, on that Memorial Day, uh, or anything like that. You know, we're not remembering it as some sort of picture or remembrance. He is there. We know he is there. We feel his presence. We share with him. He gives himself to us in the form of bread and wine. He enters into us on the subatomic level as the most important and normal activity we tend to do and sometimes over tend to do and that is eat. I've lost 36 pounds. I'm still working on it. But I have got to continuously fight the tendency 
to eat the immediate world. I mean, if something's going wrong with my wife's health or mine or the kid or what have you, you know, I'm one of those people who just has a tendency to reach for something to put in my mouth. I suppose I should be grateful it could be vodka. <laughs> there are worse things than a Twinkie. Not many, but, you know, and they got twi chocolate Twinkies. They're, it's just wonderful. It really is. Oh, God, I'm going to die. Uh, yeah, really. So, where was I? <laughs> so, you know, this, this is at the most intimate, most intimate. The only thing most intimate would be sex. Because eating is the most intimate thing we do with each other other than sex. You know, so, I mean, we know that was what they believed and taught. You cannot find a single writing with one exception. Well, not that, that even that's not the exception. There was a kind of weird group of Christians that did communion with bread and water, which I thought you gave in solitary, but, you know. Uh, but even they believed it was the Eucharist. I mean, they're just off on the, you know. Maybe it was an ex-AA group, I don't know. So, nobody has ever denied until the time of the heretics, absolute heretics, and the time of the Protestant Reformation, and not lumping them together, that this was receiving the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It is what Scripture says. It is what the early church says. Read a guy named uh, St. Justin, uh, sometimes... Justin Martyr, sometimes Justin Philosophy, got, got both of those. But he talks about that, and we know what they did. You know, there are people who say, well, we don't know, but they made this up in the 15th century. No, we know what they did. We have a litany written from the 90s. It's called St. Clement. It probably was never actually used as a liturgy, but it gives an outline of what some churches were doing. Justin the philosopher writes about what they were doing, what the prayers were, what they said. It's no great secret. You can Google it. You know, it's all out there. You know, and yet sometimes people respond like this is, oh, well, you know, you made this up, the Catholics made this up 300 years later, 500 years later. It's simply not true. And always it was the Eucharist that was the center of Christian life. We know that when they began celebrating, uh, I'm sorry, when they began burying Christians in the catacombs in Rome, that they often celebrated a funeral mass on the tomb, on the casket. Which is where, by the way, the practice of having relics in the altar developed. Because when some of those people began to be venerated as saints, you were celebrating the Mass on top of you know, their bodies, their relics, and sometimes to be shared out and what have you. Of the pictures that, we, that were put in the car and what have you, obviously, showed people receiving communion and what have you. We're talking the first century, moving into the second century. So it was the center. They did other things too. Remember that the first Christians were Jews. For about 20 years that was pretty exclusive. You had Jews talking to Jews about the life and death of a Jew. 
which was the Messiah. All of them absolutely committed to the idea that Jesus was the promised Messiah through all the prophecies of the Old Testament, particularly Isaiah and what have you. This is what they were telling their fellow Jews about uh, particularly in Jerusalem. That was a pretty close community. To the extent that most of them kept going to the synagogue service on Saturday and then gathering for, to, to get in touch with their Christian side for the Eucharist afterwards. Which is why so much of what we do, I, even at the beginning of the Mass, whether at Vespers or Matins, comes directly out of the synagogue. The chanting of the psalm. That's out of the synagogue. The, the reading of lessons, one of which is generally from the Old Testament, but other lessons as well. Canticles. Canticles began in the Old Testament. Not that today I'm as Christian, but the Denite, who we chant at the beginning of Matthew, is Psalm 95. Obviously that's up in the Old Testament. So you have this mixture in this, this early Jewish Christian community which was rooted in a particular culture probably a well possibly not, no, that's not one of two languages either Hebrew or Greek and which was a little insular you know, in other words they weren't bringing people in outside their own group you can imagine Orthodox Christianity precisely the same way. If you think of the church in Greece, or the church in Lebanon, or the church in Russia, it grows up in a specific cultural expression. Well, that's all the Jewish Christians were doing. They had their own Jewish Christian culture, which gradually became came to put them in danger. Because the other Jews, at first, think, okay, we had, they had all kinds of groups running around. You know, just like we do today. You know, Mount Pisgah, First Church, Two Seat in the Spirit, whatever it is. Uh, you know, well, they had Jewish teachers running around claiming to be the Messiah. That's why Jesus says, if they show up and say it, don't believe them. You know, they're not the Messiah, or if he's here, he's there, don't believe him. Uh, so they, they had groups like that. Okay, another nut group. Uh, but they would come to synagogue. And all of a sudden, you know, some, isn't that Paul? Back there, that, that, the Paul from Tarsus, the guy who lives in, 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 in Jerusalem. Yeah, I think you're right. Wow. He's a famous teacher, isn't he? Maybe we should ask him to talk. Okay, go back and ask. I'm you know, oh, sure I'd be happy to. And then he'd come up and preach about Jesus being the Messiah. Then they'd throw him out. But somebody would follow. And he'd gather a few Gentiles, he'd go in to go with them, and he'd start a Christian church. But first, we talk about Paul as being the Isaiah. Uh, we talk about Paul being the apostle to the Gentiles. He was first the apostle to the Jews. Those were his own people. Those were the first people he talked about. It would be as if I went to the local Episcopal Cathedral and if by some fluke, well actually it's not impossible, I know guys in this area I went to school with, if they asked me to speak, 
And I stood up and said, you know, you're on the wrong church out of you. They throw me out, but I probably get a few people to go with me. And that's exactly what Paul did. Exactly what Paul did. He had a plan. This was none of this was free man's. You know, someday we'll talk about evangelism, but uh, none of this was just, hey, what are we going to do this morning? You know, they had this stuff planned. They worked it out. They knew what they had an idea what they That lasted. Until, of course, both the Jews and the Romans got snarly. The Jews, because these Christian Jews were not necessarily supporting them in their struggle against the Romans. And they were taking what Jesus said about peace and love and brotherhood seriously. So whenever a revolt was staged against the Romans, the Christian Jews stayed at it. And after a while, the Jews were saying, excuse me, you claim you're part of us. You know, they're trying to tear down. You know, well, no, Jesus said we shouldn't get involved. In it. Well, then, you. You know, and the horse you rode in on. Uh, you know, and so they began to insert specific cursings of Jesus as a false messiah into the synagogue service. And that you see where you had to make a choice. It would be like today if the church you belong to came out gung-ho for same-sex marriage and essentially made it a basis of fellowship. You've got to make a choice. Am I going with this? Or I'm saying, I'm sorry, I cannot go with this. That's what they were faced with. And people being people, a lot of Jews caved. That's why the epistle to the Hebrews was written. It was written to Jews who were wavering. Who were thinking, you know, let's just go back. It'll get your mother-in-law off my back, you know. I mean, the kids can go play with their cousins again, uh, you know, because this group is just getting too exclusive and, and, and too crazy and, and, and what have So people scattered because they were forced to scatter. Uh, Herod had James killed. Uh, he was the first bishop of Jerusalem. Uh, Paul had gone to Damascus to persecute Christians. He was still in that mode. And then, of course, encountered Christ there and got converted. But Paul, being a man of some sense, rather than saying, good, I'm going to start church, wandered off to what is now Saudi Arabia for about 15 years and made tents while he thought about this and studied and read. It wasn't until Barnabas came from Jerusalem at the suggestion of, of some of the apostles to look Paul up and say, you know, you've got some expertise we could, we could use if you're still a Christian. Yeah, of course I'm still a Christian. I saw the Lord. Why wouldn't I be? Uh, and then takes him to where? Antioch. Our mother church. Antioch was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. There were three cohorts of Roman legions, about two to three thousand troops stationed there. There was a Roman governor in Antioch. It was a crossroads for trade from the east to the west, from the north to the south. It, it'd be a busy place. And it was unlike Jerusalem, which was monochromatically Jewish. There were Jews there, but there were different kind of Jews. There were Jews like Paul. 
could speak Greek. Paul, Paul could quote pagan Greek poets. He was a man of wide knowledge and learning. So he had a broader view of the world than the guys who were running around Palestine converting Jews to Christ there. In fact, they would not have used the term Christ. It was Mashiach. Still, Messiah. The Messiah. The Messiah. But in Antioch, you had everything under the sun. You had Jews. Uh, you had, had, had pagans of every shape and size and variety. You had worshippers of Juno. You had worshippers of Jupiter. You had worshippers of Zeus. I mean, Zeus. Uh, and maybe Jews. You had worshippers of, uh, you know, everything out there. Including, of course, the Roman Empire. These people didn't know from Messiah. They had no idea what Messiah was. Not a clue. And all of a sudden, those Christians who escaped from Jerusalem and wound up in Antioch and were anxious to talk about the gospel realized that the way they talked to their fellow Jews back home wasn't going to work. They had no idea what they were talking about. It's as if I came in here and were lecturing to you in Spanish or Swahili or whatever. I mean, you would not have any idea what I was doing. I could be telling you the truth, but you wouldn't know that. So, they really had faith. And what they did, and again, this gets back to the evangelism thing, but only for a moment, was make a, ch- a risky change. A risky change in their presentation of the gospel. Anytime you're translating from one language to another, whether it's Hebrew to Greek, Arabic to French, British English to American English, any, anything like this, you run a risk. You have to find words that people in the language you're now speaking to will recognize, but understand with a different meaning understand what they knew me. And that's what the church did in terms of evangelism for about the first 500 years. Find ways to reach out to Jews, to Greek pagans, to Roman pagans, to Iranian pagans, uh, to Zoroastrians, uh, to, to followers of John the Baptist, who went on, or they're still followers of John the Baptist today, uh, went on and on. You know, how, how do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Psalm 134. By the waters of Babylon, we sat down and How do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? Because the Jews are taken off of Babylon. Okay, guys, Mashiach's not going to work. We figured we need to keep saying fair faces on the land. What can we use? I like George. George and the United States. Batman. No, they don't know about Batman down here. Uh, well, what, what word what works with them? Well, how about Kittles? Lord. They've got Lord Jupiter, they've got Lord Zeus, they've got Lord Mercury, they've got Lord whoever the emperor of the day is. They know what Lord means. So instead of Mashiach, we'll say Kittles. Lord. That worked. It could have blown up on their faces, but it worked. So they would gather again. Now, non-Jews 
who are not in a specific culture, so you can then begin to bring other things into worship. So the first way you learn from the mass is to figure out what culture is shaped from mass. Because different cultures approach different things differently in religion. I mean, I serve in the Byzantine Rite, uh, I, I, I serve in the Western Rite, I can do Russian shit through the liturgy, that's where the mass is the solution. You know, I have to do that. All of those are different. There isn't such thing as the Eastern Rite. There are Eastern Rites, depending on what culture those people came out of. And there are really those who that Western Rite. There are variations of all kinds, depending upon culture. But you will find in the Western tradition, Western tradition, <coughs> the Orthodox. So the first thing that is communicated to you through the worship is a culture. And you learn about that culture by the worship. If you come to a church where you go through the mass and afterwards you go outside and they've got a mariachi band in the square, then you're probably dealing with a particular group. And if you're going to be a member of that community, you learn to interact. All of that is part of what we pick up when we come to the worship, because the worship is shaped by culture and by person. Culture is shaped by worship. Arab Christian culture is manifestly different than Arab Muslim culture. We're talking about two different experiences. In the way they think, in the way they speak, in the way they get people. You know, you're talking basically two different worlds. They're all Arabs. But their religion has changed the way in which they look at their work. Now what happens, of course, is that we go through a process of centuries to get to where we are now. God has never been in a hurry. He's really not pushing it. He's not, he's not flooring it. You know, he just, he lets things go at their natural place. Pace. I had a, uh, a Roman Catholic priest ask me one time, he said, well, how? Because, you know, they're dealing with the stuff about Vatican II and uh, extraordinary right and ordinary right, you know, whatever it is. You know, how do you, how, how do you people effect liturgical change? I said, it comes from the bottom up. It does not get imposed from the top down. It is stupid to impose it from the top down. Imposing it from the top down assumes you change people by changing the way they worship. In fact, you change the way they worship by changing people. Interiorly, you've got to change people here, not how to make the sign of the cross. And he couldn't get that. Because he lives in a world in which everything, supposedly, at least in the fine print, doesn't always work that way, is supposed to be imposed from the top down. Rome comes out with something and uh, says this is it. Now what happened what, three years ago when they came out with their latest instructions was the priests actually said we won't do it. We prefer a praise band and tambourines. You know, I mean, poor Pope got a real problem in his hand. Nobody listens to him anymore in his own church. More people listen to him out of that church than listen to him in it. So 
you know, I mean, he, he had, but with us, this happens to be the case, you know. When Western right churches started to come in, we had all kinds of suggestions from all kinds of well-meaning people as to what we ought to do for worship. You know, we had, we, we had basically the, the two Eucharistic rites that we have now. And you can blame me for the names. Uh, the Liturgy of St. Gregory and the Liturgy of St. Tikhon. We used to call them Gregorian and 1904 Moscow Canon Liturgy. Boy, that's old. <laughs> because the work on it was done in 1904 uh, by the Russian church when they made you know, took the Book of Common Prayer and said, mm. no, no, that's not bad. I thought it working for that. Okay, nah, not bad. Uh, and basically provides the Book of Common Prayer in an Orthodox manner, uh, consistent with Orthodox teaching and practice. Nothing ever happened of that. But by 1976, when the first Episcopal Church came to us as a group, we had set down all we needed to do in terms of just revisions. You know, like I said, we had all kinds of suggestions, because we got all kinds of well-meaning people, and some not so well-meaning, who you know, are convinced that if we just started celebrating the Sarah Mass of 1432, we could sweep the country. You know, everybody's looking for the Sarah Mass of 1432. Didn't you know that? Uh, and it was the epitome of liturgical excellence. You know, so let's do that. You know, the fact that nobody knows what you're doing. You know, the original church. I'm sorry, the original liturgy of the Church of Antioch was not that of Saint John Chrysostom. What do we use? No, no, it wasn't Paul. St. James. We used what was called, it's still called, it's still literally the church, St. James. It's now uh, uh, offered usually only by bishops once a year on October 24th, which oddly enough is the Feast of St. James. Uh, I have served it with permission a couple of times. It is a completely different form of liturgical worship from the liturgy of St. John Christ. You even receive communion in the hand everywhere. And you drink from the child everywhere. That's what we did for almost eight centuries in the Church of Antioch. And we use a form of basil as an alternative during Lent. And then, of course, the Arab conquest came. The uh, patriarchs get out of Constantinople. We had new patriarchs who managed to throw the last one out in 1904. But during that time, they managed to impose all of their forms of worship on us. That's the only reason we use Christmas. That's the only reason. Had it not happened, we'd still be using it. And if you ever have, have a chance to go, it's just very interesting you know, to participate in and to see. You, you know, because the early church didn't care. I went on the fifth century. Nobody care how you did your service. Everybody did it differently. You had basic formal structure, you had the words of the word, but I mean in terms of 
the details and the ticky-tacky and what have you, the, the, the wrapping paper. No one cared. There's a famous story, which you probably heard, but may not realize is true. That St. Monica, who was, of course, the mother of St. Augustine, went to her pastor, whose man happened to be Ambrose, now St. Ambrose, the Archbishop of Milan, because she wanted to go visit friends, relatives, whatever, Anthony, uh, in Rome. And she had heard that they did stuff different down there. You know, those people in Rome, mm, a little wine, maybe not what God only knows what goes on there in the Northwest. Uh, and this concerned her that it was going to be different. And obviously, different is wrong, right? Different is bad. Well, I'm sorry to work with our church has been turned for 1,500 years, but uh, many would look at that that way now. So she went, and I'm sure Ambrose, and this is not the first in the way he had listened patiently. And at the end of all of this, he says, Mama, when you are in Rome, you do what the Romans do. The direct quote, the true story. You don't take your traditions into somebody else's church. They have a right to their own worship. You go there, you learn what they do, you do it. That's how it should be in a community which is founded on fellowship and love. Up until the 11th century, that was the you know, people. Alexandria had its own liturgy. Antioch, well, not Antioch at that point. Constantinople had it. The difference is every place you went, and in the Rome, you only had the Gregorian liturgy in Rome. In Milan, they all they had what they called Nozara which began in Spain, and it's still celebrated. I'm sorry, the Ambrosian liturgy of Milan, the Mozarabic liturgy in Spain, where you had a heavy Arab presence. And they used a lot of Arabic in it, right? And they're Muslim, and that sort of thing. Nobody learned. When St. Augustine went to Britain, the, the Augustine went to Britain, not the one who was in North Africa, uh, which he didn't want to do. He really didn't. He kept writing on the back, you know, I don't know. There's got to be somebody else who's better at this. Look, I'm not, I, they don't need to put ice in the whiskey. Come on, like the And at one point he did. He left the monks who was leading and traveling all the way back to Rome to place and Pope Ferguson get out of here and go. And so he gets to England and he's constantly writing back to Pope Gregory first. What do I do? I mean, this is different. They're doing this different here. Number one, he found out there were already Christians in Britain. Hello. And, well, what did that then? They do it differently. We do it in reverse, wrote back, and put it together. Put it together. One from column A, one from column B. If you've got to make your own liturgy, you make your own liturgy. You're there to convert. So, we learn because we have within the Mass the Scriptures. Depending upon where you came from, they might have as many as five readings at Mass. Antioch had uh, five. Uh, there could be four one from the Law, one from the Prophets, one from the Epistles, one from the Gospel. Now we just have two the Epistle and the Gospel. But these things, even though you've heard them over and over and over and over, you have to open your mind to it. And 
and listen to. So it can seep in there. We also do songs of Mass. Those things we sing while the priest is sensing the altar, the infirmary, that sort of thing, that's part of Solomon. And that helps set the tone for the celebration of that day. The same thing is true of that little prayer that's called the college. Think of it as something which is collecting the themes that we're offering at the Mass that day together in one. The college. It refers to, generally, what you're going to hear about in the Epistle of the Gospel. Not always, but generally. Today, it referred to God's mercy and pity. But I can only think of my great-grandmother used to toss pity. That's just <laughs> But that's not that kind of pity. Uh, you know, the fact that mercy and pity. And then, of course, we, like I said, the scripture readings, which just let it flow over you. Just let it flow over you. you know, people will come to confession occasionally, and they will say, well, my mind wandered during Mass. Or that when I said, well, when, when does it wander? Maybe it's with own volition, or, you know. And I'll say, well, yeah, when we're reading, doing readings, or when we're singing something, or something along the way, I said, look, don't worry about it. If you come to church, and you let the Holy Spirit work through, because that's what's going on in here. I have been doing this as a priest 42 years, Byzantine Rite, Western Rite. And there will be Sundays in either. If I don't know by now, I'm never going to. But there have been Sundays I'm standing at the altar reading for a prayer, and a phrase or a word will simply jump out at me. After 42 years, it suddenly goes, in neon. Because here, 
on this morning, in this place, heaven and earth met. What happened here did not take place in Fort Worth. It didn't take place in Houston. It didn't take place in Moscow. It didn't take place in Beijing. Wherever the Orthodox liturgy is celebrated this day, we have ascended into heaven to be with the Lord. And heaven and earth come together. That is the ultimate learning experience about God. You know, the church does not exist. And I'll stop with it. The church does not exist to give people easy answers to horrible questions. It doesn't. No, I don't know why your three-year-old died from cancer. I really don't. I can pray about it, I can think about it, I can go off it, but I can't tell you why. Any more than I know why my son blew the brains out. He did. We got a little bit. The church is not to give answers to that. Because essentially there aren't any except the fault. The church is here to lead us in whatever part of healing our lives are, deeper into the mystery that is God. And every Sunday you come here, you ascend deeper and deeper into that mystery, and only you can know what you will make of that. Thank you for your attention. See you next time.